Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today we have another Valo trial update for you. And this is going to be from where we last left off all the way to today, which is May 11th. And we just got done hearing closing arguments. So what we're doing now is we're waiting for the verdict to come back. It could come back today. It may not come back today. Lindsay and I are frantically refreshing between speaking to see if we have a heads up yet. Yes. Amanda is losing sleep stressed. I'm at a cool waiting for justice kind of composure at the moment. Anxiously awaiting it, but I'm confident in justice. I have a fist right now. That's, I feel it. That's fair. I think everyone feels it. But yeah, I've been frantic since I knew that it was coming today or it could come today. I've been like looking forward to finally seeing her be punished for it. So unfortunately, we did not hear a verdict by end of day of this recording. But we did add our thoughts and feelings about the verdict to the end of this episode. So our last Valo update was from April 18th to the 28th. So today's will have May 1st through today, the 11th. What we'll be doing is reviewing everything that was either significant or if we learned anything new during these days. And that's what we'll be sharing. So the first one we're going to talk about is DNA finds. And during Keely Coleman's testimony, and she's a senior DNA analyst for Bode Technology, we learned that a hair sample that was found with JJ's body belonged to Lori Vallow. And that wasn't so surprising. We knew it was probably going to be from one of three people, Lori, Chad, or Alex, right? Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting about Jim Archibald's closing statement, aka the roast of Chad Daybell, which we'll cover a lot later. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was that he talked about how it wasn't just JJ that was found inside the bag, right? It was his pajamas, his blanket, his socks. And so that it's not altogether strange that his mother's hair might be on one of those items, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just an interesting kind of pivot. Because I would imagine if they're talking about finding things inside of it, there would be some other type of biological matter that they would bring up. Someone else's hair or debris from the house or something like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think Wood addressed it well, too, is that her hair, yeah, of course, could have been on the sock, pajamas, blanket, whatever. But he's like, but it wasn't in those places. It was on the duct tape surrounding the plastic bag. Yeah, it was an interesting pivot. So like, yeah, that that would have been a good thing if it was intertwined in the threading of a blanket. That makes sense to me. But he said it best where he's like, but that's not where it was. So like, good try. But that's not correct. Yeah. So another big talking point over the last two weeks is data points collected using GPS, Wi-Fi, and cell tower data. And here's a few significant ones because it was talked about a bunch. We learned a lot about what Alex Cox was up to, or at least where his devices were. Rick Wright, a contract special investigator for the FBI, testified with when and where Alex was on key dates around the case. Alex spent a lot of time at shooting ranges, various days, various time frames. Investigators believe that Tylee did indeed make it back to Lori's apartment after the Yellowstone trip, which was on September 8th. And this is pretty significant because that was the last place Tylee was seen alive. 
we all have that picture in our heads, right, of her and JJ. Yeah. And at the beginning of the case, everyone was like, well, did something happen to her at Yellowstone or on the way back from Yellowstone? And investigators believe that that didn't take place. It was after she got back to the apartment. So speaking of where he was, right, or at least his device, late September 8th and into the early morning of September 9th, Alex's device has a lot of movement. And that includes going to a gas station and then to Lori's apartment. He was at Lori's from 2.42 a.m. to 8.49 a.m. And then he headed to Chad's around 9 and arrived at 9.15. While at Chad's, numerous data points were recorded between 9.15 and 9.45. And they're primarily around the shed, the drive-up gate to the property where you can actually drive your vehicle through, and the fire pit. This is the same day that Chad texted Tammy about the raccoon as well. Wright also spent a lot of time reviewing data points from September 22nd and the 23rd, which is the last time that JJ was seen alive. Alex was back and forth between his apartment and Lori's at 4.29 p.m. and at 12.11 a.m., which would carry us into the 23rd. His device didn't leave his apartment until 9.41 a.m., when he left directly from his apartment to go to Chad's and arrived at 9.55 a.m. Data points for this visit to Chad's property show him by the pond and at the front door. Afterwards, he left and went back to Lori's at 10.12 a.m., which is pretty significant because that is not enough time to dig a grave and bury JJ. So they're like, he must have had help or perhaps stuff was already arranged. Yeah. When I also thought that was another interesting point about both closing statements was that both the prosecution and the defense made that same inference based on the time. So they both said there wasn't enough time for them to dig a grave and bury him. It ends up being about 17 minutes. But I was like, that's interesting that they both agree on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they also reviewed Alex's visit to Sportsman's Warehouse on October 9th, and investigators were able to determine what he had purchased. He purchased frog tog pants, a ski mask, a beanie, and gloves. And that matches what Tammy said the person who shot at her was wearing. Mm -hmm. On October 18th, he was near the LDS church that was by Chad's house from 10.07 p.m. to 10.45. And then there were no data points from then until 11.53 when he pings near the highway and goes to the Hilton Garden in Idaho Falls. So we're wondering, did he turn his phone off? Yeah, that's the only thing that I can come up with, right? Or maybe his phone died. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. Probably died because they were not good at this, clearly, right? No, no, they were really bad. Well, and also, again, that October 18th date, by the way, is significant because Tammy died in the early hours of October 19th. Mm -hmm. So in addition to where Alex's devices were, we learned about his search history from Fremont County Sergeant Vince Kagamanu, who testified again. So he searched directions to Brandon's address. Which, remember, not everyone knew because it was a new address. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Specifics on shooting guns and how they would shoot in certain temperatures. He's also searched the car that Tammy drove, and then there were searches in relation to shooting through a vehicle. They also found guns in Lori's garage that were shown to the court, and it was discussed why Tammy could think one looked like a paintball gun. And specifically, they talked about the base of it looked similar to the Grendel assault rifle, which is what Alex had looked up. And he had even searched like the particular gun and shooting through a Dodge Dakota, which is what the Daybells had. Right. And it wasn't at, like the hopper of the gun, how they could believe that that looked like the paintball gun part. I don't know guns. But. Yeah, because they were like the hopper could look like the scope, which I was like, I could see that. And I could also see how she would just automatically assume it was a paint gun, because why would she think somebody was trying to kill her? 
It's that same thing that when people find a body, they often think it's a mannequin first because they're not thinking I'm finding a dead body. Yeah, that's fair. They think it's something less terrifying at first. Yeah. So another interesting thing we learned about the attempted shooting in early October was that Tammy typically parked out back of their house and she would come in through the back door. And that night, for whatever reason, she parked out front. Mm -hmm. So she was coming in the front door and that threw Alex off, we think. Yeah, that makes sense. And everybody thinks, basically, because he was probably set up out back and then she parked out front and he's like, oh, no. Right, right. I think because she was carrying stuff in, I know she Mm -hmm. mentioned that she had some stuff to bring in. Yeah. And if you do want to see the layout of the property, I did take a video when I was in Rexburg, and it is up on all of our social media channels. And I actually drive around the whole property. It's just a quick video, but you could see where both driveways are. So let's also talk about what we learned about Tammy. Eric Christensen, the medical examiner that performed her autopsy in Utah, testified. And there was no indication that Tammy had a history of seizures. And the cause of death was asphyxia. And the manner of death that Christensen listed was homicide. There were bruises on her arms that happened in the hours around the time of her death. And they showed a diagram of where they were. They were consistent with someone who was being restrained. That broke my heart. Exactly. Additionally, Detective Bruce Mattingly from the Fremont County Sheriff's Department testified some reasons why Tammy's medical history was the complete opposite of what Chad told law enforcement. For example, he was saying that she had started to feel like weaker and was generally not doing well. But when you look at her Fitbit data, she was very active and it didn't show that there were any signs of her slowing down. In fact, she was like more active. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately, she didn't wear her Fitbit to bed. So they couldn't figure out her time of death. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that they could have deduced that from that data. It was also interesting because the reason why they were asking about seizures is because a possible way that she had asphyxiated that wasn't homicide. And the defense even really pushes like, are you sure there couldn't be any seizures? Are you positive? Can you definitively say? And Christensen's like, based on the way her brain looks. There's no reason to think that she would have had a seizure. Yeah. And he talks about that they even had another expert who was an expert, like looking at brains for this kind of situation, come look at it. And they didn't find anything. He talked about how the fact that Tammy was on medication and that that sometimes causes seizures. And Christensen was like, there's no reason for me to think she has a seizure. It seemed like he was over him asking about seizures. Yeah. Also, we learned a little bit more about Chad's collection of the life insurance payouts from Tammy. We learned through testimony from Angela Yancey, a payroll benefits administrator where Tammy worked, that Tammy's life insurance was changed in September of 2019 and that talking with Chad when he went to file the claim was unusual. And also the amount changed from a few thousand dollars to multiple times her salary, which it went from the lowest plan to the highest plan, which I know that some employers who just have two and it's low or high, but that just seems like a lot. The timing of it. Yes. Also, when Yancey was telling Chad what she would need in order to file the claim, she said she needed a copy of the death certificate. And Chad was like, don't worry, I've got eight death certificates coming on in. And this is two days after Tammy died. And Yancey was like, that is very bizarre. I normally don't see more than just like a few. I've never seen anybody order that many. Mm -hmm. And the timing of it again, just like, Mm -hmm. oh, she's dead. Time to get money. It's callous. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely stood out. So moving on to some more testimony. Alice and Todd Gilbert, who were neighbors of the Daybells, testified. Can I just tell you, this testimony was such a fucking ride. It really was. I was like, what? How are we just hearing from them? 
right? Right? They did share a lot. So they testified individually, but a lot of the stuff obviously is the same. But I will clarify if one or the other said it. So they both said that Chad began acting more distant in 2019. And Chad shared with Alice in February of 2019 that he had a vision that Tammy's life was coming to an end and that she wouldn't live to the age of 50. Which who says that to someone? That's horrific. Suspicious. Also, as another note, I'm sorry, Archibald brought that up in his closing statement and suggested that perhaps the reason why Tammy upped her life insurance policy was because Chad told her about this vision and she thought that she was going to die. Mm-hmm. That would also explain why she did go visit her family by herself. And he convinced her of it? Mm-hmm. It does, but mm, still a stretch. It's still a stretch, but I was like, oh, interesting. That maybe she knew. Because also, I mean, Amanda, if your husband was like, I had a vision, Amanda is going to die this year. I'd be like, Amanda, (laughs) Mike's saying weird shit. I would not say something to you. Right, right. That and then also, wouldn't you think that she would have shared a lot with her kids too? Mm Mm-hmm. Your father thinks I'm going to die. I don't think I'm sick. I don't know what's going on. But if something were to happen to me, here's what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like leave like last instructions. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe she did because we really haven't heard from the kids very much. But that's speculation there. But he did indeed tell that to Alice. Tammy overall, according to them, seemed pretty healthy before her death. Now, Emma called Alice at 7 a.m. the morning that Tammy died. And Chad took the phone and told her not to tell anyone for an hour. But Alice is like, "Mm, I'm still calling the bishop and called. When she came over to the house, she said that Chad did not seem stunned while the children did. So he didn't really seem that upset. They did. Chad told them after the funeral, he was moving into a condo with a friend. And both of them believed that it was a man, not a woman. A week after Tammy died, Chad told them that he met a woman that he was going to marry. Which again, that's a big red flag. A week after your spouse dies. Agreed. They then met her, so Lori, and I want to say Melanie was with her, shortly after at Temple. And they thought it was strange because Chad and Lori were all over each other like teenagers. Chad also mentioned when they met her that Lori had lost a daughter. Again, Chad DeBall. Chad DeBall. Stupid fucking criminal. I just don't understand why that would leave his mouth. And to them, they thought, oh, maybe she lost, you know, a child due to cancer or something horrific. So, of course, they're not going to ask follow-up questions with it. Yeah. But it was memorable, and they did remember that conversation. So, fast forward a little bit. After Lori is arrested, he has the audacity to ask them to put their home up for bond. Wild. Wild. Well, also, I mean, I do want to point out that the way that their testimony is shared, they don't make it seem like they're close with Chad. But Chad named one of the characters in his books Brother Gilbert. So he was clearly trying to be close with them. Yeah. And he clearly maybe thought that they were closer than they actually were. Well, I know Tammy was pretty close with Alice, right? Yeah. Very weird, though. After he asked them for bond money, Alice, once she knew that the kids were missing and that they even existed, she confronted Chad. Good. And the biggest thing that I was like, ugh, she brought up the conversation about how he had told them that Lori lost a daughter. And he's like, I never said that. Mm-mm. And then she brought up something like, doesn't Tylee want a life, a car, a boyfriend, all of that. And his response is what got me. Ugh. He said it in past tense, by the way. She didn't like people and she didn't like me. I don't give a fuck whether she liked you, Chad. 
Mm-hmm. Seems like most people don't like you. Exactly. Absolutely disgusting. And then Todd shared that he had listened to podcasts that Lori and the group had done. And interestingly, they played part of an episode during court. And this was like heavily debated. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And in the part that they played, Lori discussed her background, how her life turned bad and she almost gave up. But then the Lord showed her herself in the pre-existence as a warrior and that she had to come here to fight this war. Her beliefs seemed like a little odd, but like they were in line with stuff. But in the recording, she did seem pretty tame in her beliefs. So just interesting. Yeah. So we also heard from Audrey Bettaterio, and she was a friend of Chad and Lori's. Audrey shared about how her friendship with Lori started after Chad asked her to be Lori's friend. And her text conversations were later brought up, and they were from Lori's iCloud. But we're going to talk about so many texts later on, and we'll talk about those too. So in her testimony, Audrey said something that was never brought up in the grand jury proceedings. And what she said was that when she ended her friendship with Laurie, she was staying with Laurie in October of 2019, and Laurie threatened her. Poor Audrey. She asked Laurie, is there anything weird going on that I don't know about? And as soon as Audrey went upstairs to pack, she says Laurie started laughing, like she was laughing at someone, and then said, you're so naive and too trusting. You're like a little child. You think the world is all unicorns and rainbows. You go around helping people and serving them. Well, I've got news for you. Not everyone is a good person and not everyone can be so kind. Audrey says that Laurie then threatened to kill her and that she would cut her up and wasn't in the mental place to do it, but would get herself in a place to do it. She also said something about there will be blood and bleach and something about trash bags and that she would bury her in a place that no one would find her. And if you followed the case, this is right. This is reminding you of Tylee, right? Yes. Yes. And it's pretty horrific. It is. It's bizarre she didn't bring it up in the grand jury. Because if that was the case, if Lori was going around threatening people like that, I feel like we would have heard it sooner. Me too. We're reading stuff as it's happening live and then we're going back and listening to things. That caught me off guard that day because I had never heard of it from any other person that was close to Lori. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more straightforward than we've ever heard anyone testify about Laurie being. Yes. Normally, all of her work is done through one of the men in her life. That's true. So Ian Pulaski also testified, but his wife Melanie did not, which you know I was disappointed about because I really did want to hear from her. That's all I wanted. Yeah, and his testimony was really interesting. And so... The reason why Melanie didn't testify was because she may have listened to testimony and or read stories at the trial. And because of that, they even had to determine whether Ian was allowed to testify. But he was. And so he discussed his timeline of getting involved with Melanie, what he heard about her beliefs, that Melanie shared a bunch of information the morning after they got married, and that he never saw JJ or Tylee. He also noted that he asked Chad and Lori before proposing. Very weird. He also went to the police and was asked to make recordings. These were never played for the court, and he was actually making recordings on behalf of the FBI. I found it interesting that during court, he said he was worried about his safety, his kids, and his ex-wife's safety, and went to the authorities. But when Nate Eaton interviewed him and Melanie in 2020, he says that he regretted the way he presented it to the FBI. And that's... A little interesting because he continues to switch back and forth between whether he's scared or he's not or he thinks that there's something wrong or he doesn't or he thinks that there's nefarious actors or he doesn't. But so Laurie and Chad told Melanie that there would be a spiritual attack on December 12th 
And as a reminder, December 12th is the day that Alex Cox died. And when Alex died, it confirmed to Melanie that they had this power, right? Because they said there was going to be something that happened that day. Per Ian, Melanie was distraught when Alex died, but he said, I don't believe a spiritual attack killed Alex. None of us do. And I just want to like point out that during his testimony, I really get the sense that he had gotten to a place where looking back, he was like, there was a whole lot of things wrong. He talked about how he tried to convince Melanie that the light and dark was perhaps a bit off and that she also should be cooperating with police because Mm -hmm. they're looking for missing children and concerning, just concerning. And we'll talk more about the Pulaski's in a bit as well. Yeah, it was very strange. I don't understand him. And I think that bothers me that I can't wrap my head around him. Yeah. So moving on, there were a lot of days that we talked about Lori's eye clouds. And what was recovered was a ton of information. So many text conversations. Retired FBI agent Doug Hart shared information from two of the iCloud accounts belonging to Lori. One was Lolly Time, and that was created a bit later in April of 2019. And the other is Lori for Style, which was created in December of 2000. Now, I named them because I've seen a lot of posts where people are saying Lolly Time said this or Lori for Style said this. So just so you know what they're talking about. Also, just as a note, you can search those usernames on the internet. Mm-hmm. Do with that information what you will. Yes. So Hart said that they had used the word obstacles to describe JJ, Tylee, Charles, and Tammy. And that came up again in closing arguments as well. Many conversations were shared about their beliefs, their plans, Chad and Lori's romance, how they wanted to be together forever, them looking forward to being on a tropical island together. I hate them. (laughs) The James and Elena story, which we've talked about and is absolutely gross. They also talked about death percentages and a lot more. I just hate it. I hate any time they're joyous. Me too. Yeah, I just get upset. And just because it's come up a lot lately, the reason the James and Elena story was discussed is because there's so many similarities between the story and their lives. So what he was writing to her reflected what they were actually doing, which is interesting. And I didn't expect for so many pieces of the story to be read in court. No one did. No one wanted that. No. And it was so, you know, important to decipher what was going on that they assigned a woman named Nicole Heidman to organize the entire story. And we just felt so bad for her having to be in charge of that. I know. I know. Like, when we were taking notes, I was like, this poor person. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All I kept thinking is, I hope Lori is just a tad bit uncomfortable right now. You know, like, while they're reading all this. I hope she is squirming a bit, but everyone said she was just straight-faced. So while reviewing all of this, it was clear to investigators that the relationship between Chad and Lori was the driving force in the crimes alleged in the case. So we picked out a couple text conversations that we wanted to talk about because we thought that they either shared some new information or just really confirmed what they were doing. The first one's from July 18th of 2019, and it starts out from Chad. I have been instructed to focus my efforts on Hillary, so I will. Lori. Okay, find out her percentage for me and JJ. Chad, she has a 0.13. I turned up the pain to 10 and placed a spiritual virus in her. He is at 99.99. Raphael visited him and told him to follow Amy into the light. I also assured him that James would love and take care of his mommy, which he will with all of his heart and soul. Lori, 
that is sweet. I miss you desperately. First off, ill, right? Like they're talking about death percentages, right? Mm-hmm. And she's just like, that's so sweet. I miss you. Also, for clarification, Hillary is the name of the entity that they gave that inhabited Tylee's body, supposedly. My question is, right, since when does a demon care if the person who they possessed parent is going to be happy and taken care of? I think what he was meaning is that spiritually he was talking to JJ. Get fucked. Because remember, they don't think JJ's in that body anymore. They think, you know, he's in that limbo, right? And this is for our understanding. We believe we understand what they mean now. But when they get possessed, right, their spirit goes to a limbo until they free that spirit. Got you. Got you. It's fucking bananas. But yeah, I got you under. That makes more sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Also, another piece of this, according to Hart, the closer someone was to zero or 100, the closer they were to death. So Chad said Tylee was at 0.13 and JJ was at 99.99 in July. They died in September. It's very clear to me that the conspiracy to kill the kids and Tammy really took off in July and August. That's when the actions started happening, right? Laurie's changing bank accounts, unenrolling people. Yeah, a lot of changes happened then. Also on that same day, July 18th, 2019, another text conversation that was discussed. And this is the one that Lindsay and I had a field day with. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, everyone. Again, we're trying to get through this because it is really sad. We're talking about dead children. A woman who everything that we've read about was very sweet, loved animals, everything we would have loved her. And Charles, who we literally saw pleading to police for help. So it's really sad. But this we did laugh about. And and I guess so did the court. How do you not? Chad, you are so adorable, beautiful, wonderful, heavenly, luscious, and angelic. So many divine attributes rolled into one dynamic, desirable package. I want you even more desperately than you want me. Then Chad goes, just grab me by the storm and I will follow you to the end of the universe. Lori then said, when might that be? Chad, Wednesday evening, and then repeatedly and gloriously until Friday. (laughs) Makes me uncomfortable. Then Lori says, and then what? And she also says, back to crying and saying goodbye. Back to the box. Chad then says, this trip to Utah had a lot of finality to it. I was told extreme changes are coming to me and to Utah. I welcome them both. And then Hart continued afterwards where they were like, well, why would you bring this up? And he's like, I'm proving it shows that they had an affair. It also shows that he was planning on traveling. And I guess where he ended up going was Arizona to visit Lori. And then the other question they ask is, what is Storm in reference Mm. to? I hate it. And he's like, that's the name that was given to Chad's penis. (laughs) What the fuck? Also, didn't they say that Zulema controlled storms? Yes. That's what I kept thinking of, too. Yeah. (sighs) No. Yeah, just all around gross, gross. And yeah, so he did end up going to visit Lori from the 24th to the 26th, which is awful. And when they were talking about the storm, Nate Eaton wrote that when he was in court that day, a woman behind him gasped. And I think as did everyone that read that. That would have been me. I would have been audibly, loudly gasping and perhaps gagging. Yeah. Because it's just so fucking gross. It is. 
So, okay. On July 20 of 2019, there's text messages where they're discussing Melanie's kids. And it's Melanie Pulaski, by the way. So Lori says, what's Blake's percentage? He drew three crosses on the wall in his bedroom. We just finished painting over them. Like he was marking it for the dark side to find him. And Chad said, Blake is at a seven. I took my sword of life and sliced his aura vertically in several places. You should be able to now rip and burn it. I also decreased his pain tolerance to 1% and greatly increased his pain. His desire to depart is at an 80%. Just as a note, we discussed it before, but there's body cam footage of Melanie from November of 2019 which is this time period Mm -hmm. when police spoke to her because she was trespassing at her former in-law's property because she was trying to take her children. Yes. That's all I thought about is that body cam footage. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, what if? What if she got them? Yeah. Like, what would she have done to them? And I also am curious, is she still believing all this batshit stuff? Are her children safe near her? I don't know. I don't know. Were they safe? Are they safe? I don't know. The good thing is, is that they have Brandon and he's like clearly a wonderful human. He saved their life, I think. Yeah. One also, Ian doesn't seem like a person in this version of him that would let people hurt kids. I don't know. I could be wrong on that, but I would think that that's probably a good influence on Melanie. So on July 23rd of 2019, Laurie texted Chad, good morning, missing you, didn't sleep much, need you to check JJ. Weird stuff happened in the middle of the night. It's like they distracted us with Blake. Then, Lori texts, when you get home, check Tylee. She is being super sweet and helpful, and she's cleaned her room. See if she got switched. Totally not her. And Chad said, yes, she was switched. Please let me know when you can talk, and I will explain it. When I read that, I teared up. Right? She was being a good kid. Right? Like, she was just being good. She cleaned her fucking room as a teenager, and now she has to die? Yeah. Well, not even just that, but she switched. She was already considered dark for years at this point. So are they saying that she switched to a light version of her momentarily? What does that mean? Maybe she was dark, but she wasn't fully possessed yet. We know that some things have said that Tylee had been dark for years. We don't know if that means that she was fully possessed. We don't know if that means that she was just open to whatever bullshit they're talking about. But clearly what this is showing is that there's some cracks in this logic, right? That like there's this moment for a brief fucking moment where Laurie's like, hmm, she's being good. Is it possible she's good? And Chad is pretty quick to come up with some wackadoo response, you know? The whole thing's sad. Yes. It's end of July, and a little over a month later, that's when they killed her? Mm Mm-hmm. So on July 26th of 2019, Lori sent Chad a text asking him to check on JJ and said, she said he was calm and he watched movies all day, which he would never do. Chad responds, it is still JJ. I'm told she's lying about him being calm and watching movies. Lori said, Mel knew. She called me. She felt the real Brighton, Melanie Boudreaux's child, last night and knew she was different. She was told I didn't want to tell her. She's taking it well and knows it's part of a big plan. She is amazing. Although I'm still pretty upset about it, I love you. Trying to hang in there, missing your kisses. And I think that as we go, we're talking this disgusting fucking relationship. 
But like they're mixing in horrific facts about these kids and then like following it with like weirdly sappy and sentimental things. This child is possessed. Miss kissing you. What? Yeah. That got me, especially because now we're not even talking about Lori's kids, right? We're talking about her niece's children. And we said Melanie Boudreaux's child, and Melanie Boudreaux later changed her name to Melanie Pulowski when she got remarried. So just so you know, they're one in the same. But very strange that they're talking about other people's kids. And I, I suspected that they were getting Melanie's kids involved, right? We've always thought about it. Yeah. But now we know, right? Like they were saying they are also changing and they're not there. They're not the real children, whatever. I just can't wrap my head around why. Like, did they just want her full attention on them and not to have to be bothered with the joint custody and stuff between Arizona and Rexburg? I don't know. I just don't understand why they brought these poor children into it. All of the kids I feel for, obviously, we've talked about it. But it's just these kids aren't even connected to these two weirdos, right? I honestly think it's because they couldn't just say it was these kids. It would be suspicious if it was just these children who could be dark, right? If it was only people who, from the outside looking in, it was very clear were considered obstacles to this couple. But if it's Melanie's kids, too, they're not obstacles, right? They're just part of this weird war that they think that they're waging. Well, right. They're all special. And I'm not saying it's okay. I could just I could see how they're trying to get other people to do it because also that makes them more likely to not roll on them, to not like say things about them or to testify or do anything like that because they've also done terrible things. That's true. I think it's that that's part of his teachings, too, is to like isolate the person. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're special, too. And these bad demons are trying to get to you. And the thing to get closest to you is your children. Yeah. Either way, it's just absolutely disgusting. And I just don't even have words for it. It's so sad. It really, really is. So on July 29th of 2019, Chad texted one question. Do you want me to cause pain yet to those two threes you're riding with? Lori said, probably hold off on them until we arrive. This will be a mistake to deal with, but I'll text you if they start acting up and we can zap them. Miserable, not mistake. So this will be miserable to deal with. Chad said, sounds great. Yes, if they are going to act up, we'll at least give them a reason to scream. I love, cherish, treasure, and adore you. The wonderful memories just keep coming back. You are mesmerizing. Raphael is one lucky guy. Get fucked, man. So in his testimony, Hart said that Lori was on a trip with Melanie B and her two kids during that. And referencing the two threes in the car, Hart says JJ was present, but he's unsure about Tylee. And also there was never a message where Lori protested anyone getting hurt. So of all the text messages that exist in this case, never once did Lori say, are my kids okay? Don't hurt my kids. Where are they? I don't know what's going on. Can you help me find my kids? There's no texts that say that, that we've seen. And I feel like the defense, maybe that would have been their one piece of evidence that they could have added, was some communication at some point where Laurie seems upset about her fucking kids. Mm -mm. She didn't give a fuck about anything. She's a monster. So one interesting thing is Hart also talked about a time where Laurie and Chad had a fight. Love that for them. It's interesting, though, because they're they're texting like this, right? They're talking about how kids are possessed. And then, oh, my gosh, I miss you so much. Missing your kisses. Like, disgusting shit. And in between all of this, there was a fight. So 
Lori had told Melanie that her and Chad had a fight. And between this, she's also still getting texts from Chad saying, my heart is crushed. I will never stop loving you. And then he continues to text a few hours later. And it sounds like he's kind of getting pissed off that she's not answering his texts. So he's kind of like throwing a tantrum. And he says, Grandpa Keith is here. I am supposed to warn you that you are unprotected. The angels are angry that you are ignoring me. But he says he isn't allowed to. I'm honestly not trying to manipulate you to respond. (laughs) I understand that you need your space. But they say that you have cut me off and the protection I built around your house is gone. I love you and I don't want you getting attacked. They said that if you at least give me a thumbs up, and I think he used the emoji there, it will restore our protections. She then finally responds with, I love you. And then he says something like, I'm going to get to work getting things restored. Everyone knows the mystical powers of a thumbs up emoji. You know, commonplace. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows thumbs up emoji restores the magical barriers. Fucking, what a loser though. Like he, he couldn't go a little <laughs> Nerd. Like in my head I went, nerd. <laughs> I mean, to me, like, look, I don't think that Laurie's innocent here, but I do think that he manipulated the fuck out of her. She's responsible for not being, frankly, an idiot because she's got other people to worry about. You know, if you're going to be an idiot, at least you should be an idiot for yourself. And I've been an idiot in my life, so I can say that. And I feel comfortable in saying that. But like, you've got kids you've got to worry about. So you can't just get wrapped up in your own shit and then not expect there to be consequences. Right? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think. Right, right. And just because a lot of people were like, who's Grandpa Keith? They did specify that Grandpa Keith is deceased. I mean, of course he is. He's there warning Chad that his girlfriend's not texting back, so she's unprotected. I don't know. I just feel like they have better things to be doing. Oh my god, what a naggy ghost. No one's watching your girlfriend. So fucking stupid. I hate them so much. I don't know why he talks like that. I'm so sorry. We got a... uh, A single accent. An accent out of him. Yes, yes. So... Let's move on to some more terrible, awful texts. August 10th. So this is a little less than a month before Tylee was last seen alive. Lori, please check JJ. He just woke up saying crazy stuff and won't go back to sleep. He is talking to Blake. It's weird. Chad, JJ is still JJ. I am told his spirit recognizes Blake as evil and is unsettled by him. Chad, hi, my love. How is JJ now? Lori, he's better. He was just up talking nonsense for like two hours last night. I'm sure they were bugging him. Is he at zero yet? I miss you. Yet. I'm going to pause this conversation for a second. Yes. Yet. Is he at zero yet? So she's talking about how her kid is possessed. He's getting closer to their death percentage. But I miss you. I'm shaking my head. She's literally asking yet. Monster. Chad's response. Yes, he's at zero. He probably was partly through the veil, talking to people both light and dark. Lori, maybe he was talking to the real Blake. Chad, yes, that was the real Blake. I love that he knows everything, right? He knows a lot of things. Lori, do you think there is a perfectly orchestrated plan to take the children and we just have to wait for it to be carried out? She continued, I feel lost like I should be doing something to help. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Chad, oh, this part gives me chills. There's a plan being orchestrated for the children. I was shown last night, but it was taken from my mind, of course. Of course. Of course. And then, Lori, do you think there's a perfectly orchestrated plan 
to take the children and we just have to wait for it to be carried out? What should I be doing? Chad, you're doing everything right, my love. The Lord told me she is on the right track. He said to keep resolving the celestial issues so that you are unencumbered and fully free. Chad, that actually feels good that JJ was talking to the real Blake, getting close. When I was sitting across from him eating bacon, I sensed he was barely attached to his body. I fucking hate this. I fucking hate it. Everything. This whole fucking conversation is awful. When also like the orchestrated statement, by the way, right? Orchestrated for the children. You're telling me that you don't go, what do you mean is going to happen with my kids? One of the things that they talk about in the closing statements is that Laurie never said, like, kill my kids, right? She never said that. But she also never said anything to the contrary. The absence of concern is concerning. Yes. That and just she is literally asking. You guys are doing the plan, right? Mm-hmm. It's being it's being orchestrated. Like, you guys can handle this is the way that I take it. Yeah. And we just have to wait for it to be carried out. What should I be doing? And he's like, you're doing everything great. Basically, he said, I know the plan, but I'm not going to talk about it, right? It was taken from my head. Yeah. I don't know. All of this is disgusting. And then let me add another level of disgusting to it. The same day where they're talking about how her child has reached zero, she sent Chad a picture of her in a swimsuit at the beach and said, surprises are waiting. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And this, this is just a bite of... The text messages. There's so many reviewed. Yeah. Especially like Audrey's. There are some between Melanie and Lori, a bunch from Chad, just everything, right? The testimony for this took two days. So they spent a lot of time on it. Yeah, they really did. So something else that we found interesting is that Thomas asked Hart about Chad Daybell manipulating people. And Hart said that he did manipulate people, including Lori. Now, on redirect, Smith, for the state, asked if Laurie ever manipulated Chad or others, and Hart also said yes. Smith then asked if all the other women that Chad communicated with had their children dead and buried in Chad's backyard. And Hart responded that there were no other children that were buried back there, right? And then Smith says nothing further. And all I kept thinking is they were just trying to blame Chad for everything. Like, mm-hmm. he manipulated them. He manipulated all the people that came when Tammy died. He manipulated you and you and you. And it's like, this was just another way when he was asking his questions to kind of put the ball in Chad's court. Yeah, they were doing that. And Laurie also <laughs> was manipulating people because it was both of them. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, May 9th, there were a lot of things that happened in the case, right? And it was the last day of testimony and evidence being entered into the record, which is pretty significant. And on that day, right before the prosecution rests, they moved to have the indictment amended. And what they wanted changed was that there was one part that said, months instead of months. And then they said that there was a clerical error on two of the counts and it should have been a different type of grand theft. And not surprisingly, defense was like, these aren't clerical errors. These are massive differences. And professionally, what the hell, right? Like this is how long has this trial been going on? And Judge Boyce voiced his frustration about the timing of the changes, but ultimately allowed them. Then the state rested after that motion was granted. And then Archibald, on behalf of the defense, submitted a Rule 29 motion for judicial acquittal. And basically what this does is they want the court to review the evidence to determine whether there is sufficient evidence for the case to be even turned over to the jury for deliberations. And per Archibald, we don't believe the state has proven its case so the defense will rest. 
And he enters no witnesses, no evidence. None. Nothing. And I was floored. Were you floored? Nothing. Right. Well, he had mentioned, I think, before that they weren't going to have very many, but I did not think zero. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody thought zero because zero? There's zero people who can testify to Laurie's character or, you know, what she was doing during this time or what she was thinking or anything that isn't this, you know? Oof. So because they rested their case, that means that no witnesses could testify, which would include Laurie. Mm-hmm. And when they rested, Boyce verified that it was Laurie's decision not to testify. She confirmed that it was. Then court adjourned for that day. And the next day, which was the 10th, the defense and the prosecution were brought back to discuss jury instruction. And they debated them heavily. There ended up being 39 different jury instructions at the end of it. And then that leads us all to what's happening right now, currently today. So this is May 11th. And we started the morning with Boyce ruling on the defense's motion for the judgment of acquittal. And he was like, nah, the state provided sufficient evidence to back up the charges. And he ultimately denied the rule. Also, there was a five-week trial and the defense submitted nothing. (laughs) So yeah, there's a little bit of fucking evidence. I read that that's like pretty normal, though. Like he's just doing every single thing he can. No, I get it. But like, come on. Hilarious. Hilarious nonetheless. So as a reminder, because they brought it up quite a bit, obviously, during their closing arguments, here is a list of Lori's charges. Conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and grand theft by deception for Tylee Ryan. First-degree murder, Tylee Ryan. Conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and grand theft by deception, J.J. Vallow. First-degree murder, J.J. Vallow. Conspiracy to commit first-degree murder for Tammy Daybell and grand theft. So after the ruling, then we got into closing arguments. Yeah. And before we do that, we're also going to talk a little bit about jury instructions. Generally, jury instructions are just that. They are instructions to the jury. Most people are not going to have ever served on a jury that is covering something like this. No. And how you should think and what you should do and what you should give deference to isn't intuitive, right? Because you think someone is saying something in court, it should be a fact. Well, that's not always true. Like, for example, when an attorney is speaking in their closing argument or their opening statement, those aren't considered evidence and fact. Those are considered more opinions because their job is to tell you what they think the facts are. And that's just a good thing to keep in mind, right? So we're not going to go through all the jury instructions because there was 39. But I'm going to point out some that I think are interesting to kind of like get a sense of what they were told. First, you have the right to not testify. I just want as a reminder, right? The idea is not only do you have the right to not testify, but you have the right for that to not be held against you. And that's for lots of reasons. But part of it is because if you lie on the stand, right, you're guilty of perjury. And there's times when a person, either one, knows that they won't be able to be their best advocate. I think if I was ever to be testifying on my own defense, I'll probably seem guilty as hell just because I get really stressed by authority. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. Right. So there's a reason why a lot of defendants don't testify. It's not always just like, oh, you're not testifying. You're guilty. So all that to say, they shouldn't judge her on not testifying. Mm-hmm. Fair. That they should follow all of Judge Boyce's rules, not just some of them. Also, that when they list the allegations, the state has to prove each element of each crime in order for 
the jury to find them guilty. And the jury was provided a written list of instructions that they could refer back to. And this way, you know, most of them have been taking copious notes throughout the trial. They're able to kind of go through piece by piece for each element of the crime and say, like, do we think the state met that? Do we think the state met this? And it's for that reason that we might not get a verdict today because we know that there are six different charges against Laurie, each with several elements. And they're going to need to go through each one and debate whether each one has been met. Also, we saw a lot of evidence throughout the trial, but we didn't see all of the evidence. And sometimes what we saw were exhibits so that they could like kind of show a summary of some things. But the jury will have access to all of the evidence, which includes the 130 to 150,000 items on Lori's iCloud account. The only thing they won't have available to them are the guns. And if they want to view the guns, they just have to ask. And Amanda and I were talking and I was like, oh my gosh, I would just be like nosy as fuck just digging through these documents. And not purposely, but I would likely be holding things up just trying to like go through everything because I'm like, okay, like what if someone missed a text message where she said, where are my kids? Right? Like what if one person missed it? That's a lot of documents. It's a lot of things to go through. What if there is something in there that nobody saw because it's just so much and Laurie didn't waive her right to a speedy trial. So there's no way that her counsel was able to, like... Go through everything. To go through everything with a fine-tooth comb. That's fair. So Judge Boyce, nearing the end of his instructions, reminds the jury that they are not advocates, they are judges, and that it is their job to declare the truth. And I love that. Because as people who don't have all of the evidence, I could be full-on wrong on what happened and what I think happened. We could all be full-on wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And... It is a heavy thing to ask someone to take away a person's liberty. I think that Laurie's going to get what's coming to her, and I want that for her. And if the death penalty was on the table, I'd be happy for that. But it's not. I think it's good that he stressed the importance of what their role is and that their job is to find out the truth, even if it's not what everybody wants. So jury instructions, we're done with that. We're going to move on to closing statements. They covered a lot and they covered a lot of facts that we already knew about the case. So we're just going to point out some of the things that really stood out in those closing arguments. So the prosecution always goes first and Rob Wood delivered the closing statements. And he starts off by recalling the motive that Lindsay Blake gave in her opening statement, money, sex, and power. He describes a lot of the evidence, but he also underlines one point that we didn't hear really overtly as people were testifying. And it's that the common element in all of the fucked up stuff that happened is Laurie. Chad doesn't know Charles Vallow. Alex wouldn't give a hoot about Charles Vallow if it wasn't for Laurie. The kids wouldn't know Chad, but for Laurie. Chad and Alex wouldn't know each other, but for Laurie. She's that common thread. And also Brandon, how would he ever be in Chad's orbit, but for Laurie. And I mean, like, he would be in Alex's because that also was his ex-nephew-in-law. But with the exception of that, Laurie is that linchpin in the center. Yes. And so what Rob Wood said was, when it comes to conspiracy, you need to ask yourself, who murdered these people? Did Laurie intend for it to happen? And was one of these overt acts accomplished in furtherance of the conspiracy? You only need to find one overt act. The state has met its burden for each overt act. You only need to find one. And there are many overt acts that he lists, but just like some of them that you can think of are Tammy's death, the kid's death, the attempted shooting of Brandon, the theft, the changing of bank accounts, the fact that Lori didn't report her children missing. 
the burner phones, the code names, and so on. There's no shortage for a list. But an interesting thing to keep in mind is that those overt acts don't need to be criminal in nature. Those searches that Alex was doing on whether his Grendel AR would shoot through Tammy's Dodge Dakota, that's an overt act. Mm -hmm. So throughout the case, we heard so much testimony about what other people doing without much conversation as to why. And so I think it's just interesting that, again, he's saying it's Laurie. She's the reason why. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, she's involved. To Lori. Yeah. yeah. And like Tammy and JJ and Tylee, they weren't Alex's obstacles. They were Lori's. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Wood showed a photo of Lori and Chad on the beach and said they were freed from obstacles of their kids and wife. They were dancing on the beach. And Wood also talks about Lori grooming people. And Amanda mentioned earlier that use of the word obstacles. Also, throughout his closing statement, Wood discusses how Chad and Laurie spoke to one another when these horrific things in their life were happening and that how they had those like lovey and sexual texts. And, you know, we just went through a whole bunch of them where it's like terrible news, but I miss you. And it's fucking weird. It's very weird. Additionally, for the murder charges, Wood specifies that if they believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Laurie aided and abetted Tyler or JJ's murder they must convict her of first-degree murder. And that's really important, right? Because that's not she's there. That's not she dropped the kids off. That's not she buried them. That's not she did it herself. Did she help? Mm -hmm. And if she helped, then she's guilty. She literally asked, what's their percentage? Multiple times. Exactly. Exactly. Looking for status updates on when it was time. Wood also talks about overt acts in conspiracy of the grand theft on top of the conspiracies for murder. And again, you know, it's the common scheme. It's the fact that she didn't report her kids missing, that she changed her bank accounts. Like she knew the money was going to not be able to keep going into those accounts. She needed to be able to have access to it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think that Wood delivered an excellent closing statement and then rebuttal after Archibald's roast. But let's talk a little bit about the defense's closing statements. Yes. So as Lindsay called it, it was the roast of Chad Daybell. He did not hold back. He made sure at any part that he could blame Chad, he did. He talks about how Lori was a good mother and was a certain way. And then things changed dramatically in October of 2018. He discussed Chad, who he is, about Lori reading all of his books, about the teachings, the 144,000, evil spirits, light and dark, all of that. And one thing that I thought was interesting is he said, one year after meeting Chad, four people are dead. But then he immediately reminds the jurors to not consider Charles's death in this case, as Lori's not facing charges in Idaho for that, which I'm like, you just brought it up to say, don't think about it. And then he continues to bring up Charles several times in his closing statement. I just found that to be a little messy, I guess. One good point that he did make, and I will give it to him, is when he responded to the state's argument that this was about money, sex, and power. (laughs) He started out. (laughs) So he starts out with the money portion, right? And he says, Charles was making four hundred dollars to five hundred thousand a year. So after his death, Lori was making far less in social security money. So what was the point in his death? And then he moves on to Chad and he says, who can't sell enough stupid books about the end of the world, which I thought was hilarious. Mm -hmm. And he also mentions Tammy had to support him because of it. So Lori wanted to ditch Charles, who makes 400 to 500,000 a year and go to Chad, who makes 30,000 a year. And she wanted to do that for money. 
I was like, ooh, that's a good point. I mean, we know a little bit more. He's kind of just like broad stroking it. Yeah. But it was a good point to make. Yeah. And then he moved on to power and he kind of roasted Lori at the same time in this one. He said, Chad, you know, convinced Lori she was a goddess. But how many converts did she have? Zero. But how many did Chad have? By his count, it was six. And he said, quote, this great cause of saving the world and gathering up 144,000. Chad got six. Lori got zero. Doing some simple math, Chad has 143,994 people left to gather before Jesus comes. At the rate of six people a year, that would take Chad 24,000 years to get his army assembled. The math is ridiculous. I mean, the math is ridiculous. <laughs> I love that he sat there and did that. But this next one is what really was just like, oh, okay, we're full on roasting. We're full on roasting now. Yes, yes. So remember, it was money, power, and sex. So now he's going to talk about the sex portion of it. So he started it off with comparing the level of attractiveness between the two men, Chad and Charles. I mean, look, neither are my type, but like from photos alone, you can see that Charles carried himself with confidence. Yes. He had the confidence of apparently of a man who was making $400,000. That would make me stand up really tall. Look, Charles was significantly more attractive. That was hilarious. But then he also said, like, she read Chad's books during a hard time in her life. And he called her a goddess. And then he goes on to say, you know, that they were married in a previous life. So it's not really cheating. And how they were BFFs with Jesus. And Jesus approves. So it's totally okay. And then he ends it with, it's pretty scary that pickup line from Chad to Lori worked. I thought that was funny because we all said that how many times? How was that a pickup line? Yeah. Well, we also like we talked about how we had to look like a thumb. Right. Oh, and something we found out recently is that Chad had texted Lori, I want to get going full steam on the Lily workout plan. Tighten the abs. Get a full body tan. Grow my hair out. This could be really good for both of us. And Lori to Chad said, I love that plan. Mm-hmm. And I had thought that he had just like lost weight from the amount of time they were spending together and that he was tanned because they were in Hawaii but apparently she was trying to make him look better okay I do love though that Archibald after he said that he was like he compares him right and then he's like it's not about sex because he's not as attractive (laughs) like I love that so much do you know what I mean he's like look at him it couldn't be about sex basically is kind of like paraphrasing but woof Yes. So throughout his closing, though, he kind of downplayed their beliefs as well. He brought up Chad's blessing to Alex and its craziness. And he said, quote, opening the portals of time, third creation, fourth creation, great warriors, exaltation, but came back to the fifth creation. What the heck is Chad talking about? He's the leader of his new church. He calls himself a patriarch. Just goofy stuff. He's totally putting it all on Chad throughout every piece of this. Mm hmm. And that he claims Lori didn't have a plan to kill her kids. And this is based off of she hired a babysitter to watch JJ. Why would she do that if she was just going to kill him? And she enrolled him in school. Why would she do that? The only reason she lied to all these people was to protect Chad, because that was her lover and her eternal companion. And then he did bring up, too, look, she didn't get life insurance on the kids. Like, she didn't have policies on the kids. 
but she Googled life insurance policies for the kids. Yeah, like, I think that the reason why she didn't was probably because I'm not going to act like I know a whole bunch about children's life insurance policies, but I would imagine that any life insurance policy that you take out initially and then the person dies within six months, that is a red fucking flag. So, Mm -hmm. like, Tammy, it wasn't immediately a red flag because she already had that policy. They just upped it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting that at one point, Archibald, in relation to Tammy, he says, Tammy was still with Chad, even though he was so nutty. She stood by him even as they went bankrupt, as he was trying to sell his stupid books. So her prophetic husband, who said, dear wife, you're going to die next year. Could that cause her to increase her life insurance? Prove to me that's false. He also questions whether Tammy's death was homicide. But I think that the part that really stands out to me is the entire tone of this, right? His tone is that this entire case is ridiculous. The whole thing is silly. Yeah, the beliefs are crazy. There is some bad stuff that happened, but it's utterly ridiculous to think that Laurie had anything to do with this because there's no concrete proof, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what he's trying to get the jury to feel is that it just feels ridiculous and silly. Yes. But I think that where he really fucks up is he says, Chad knew, but does she know that Chad and Alex stuffed her kids in Chad's backyard? Go listen to it again and you make your determination. And he's referring to the the conversation the day the kids were found. Yeah. Yeah. Stuffed her kids in Chad's backyard. What a callous way to describe what happened to JJ and Tylee. I'm pro-roasting Chad Daybell, right? But when you start talking about what happened to those kids in a flippant way, to me, that kind of like sucker punched me back into reality as I was reading it. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's a weird way to say that. If I was a jury member, I can't imagine that I would feel differently, right? I feel like I would go, oh, that was a weird way to say that. And at one point, he starts crying because he's talking about the recording of the call between Colby and Laurie. And again, that was a very emotional call that they talked about in the beginning of the case where he's talking about his siblings. And Archibald kind of starts to crack like he's crying. And he says it was so painful. It was just it's just so painful. And he's trying to evoke some type of sympathy, but he falls short to me. Yes. Agreed. I think I put that in our outline. Like, was he going for sympathy? What What's his angle here? Because how he talks about the kids and all these jurors saw autopsy pictures of JJ. That is in their head. And they just saw them freshly again. Wood shows pictures of the remains of the children in his closing statements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a few people that Nate Eaton interviewed on their lunch break today that was like, prosecution hit it out of the park. But the defense didn't have a leg to stand on. And I think that's true. Like, I think he had a couple good points. He actually did a good job with the time that he had. But overall, it was very messy and very jumbled. And like I mentioned before, like bringing up Charles and then saying, but don't think about Charles. And then let me talk about Charles more. Like, he's kind of all over. And Lindsay and I were talking before we recorded that he only had so much time. And especially with like her iCloud account. There's so much that they didn't have time to comb over. And he, from what we understand, asked her to waive the right to a speedy trial so that they could have more time to be prepared. And she's like, no. Yeah. So I think he did a good job overall, but he probably could have done better with more time. Not that I'm rooting for her in any capacity. Everyone knows that. But just him as a person. Yes, I do agree with you, with the exception of the fact that when you hear the word Storm Amanda, what do you think? Oh, God. Yeah, he ended it. So fucking stupid. The way he (laughs) fucking ended it. He said, 
This is this is how he ended his closing arguments. If there's anything we learned about a storm, you hide from a storm. You seek shelter from a storm. Lori spent her whole life protecting her children. Thank you again. What? Why did you do that? That's been Why like did you a do that? joke all week. It's every Yes. Everyone's cackling about it in the courtroom. You would think like, maybe don't bring up a storm. But also just like, why would you say it like that? Why would you do that? Why would you end it that way? It just doesn't make any sense to me. But Nothing makes sense. Whatever. Nothing. Nothing makes sense. Unfortunately, we did not hear the verdict on the 11th when we first recorded. But the following day on the 12th, we did hear a verdict. And I think everyone, except for that one weird man outside the court, was very pleased with the verdict. Heck yeah. And what we learned is that Lori was found guilty of all charges. We love this for her. Absolutely. We love the idea of her never seeing freedom again, the possibility of that. It also did not occur to me that there was anyone out there who still believed these wackadoo beliefs. Yeah. And that there might be like daybell truthers out there. Doesn't that freak you out a little? It does. Yeah, after the verdict, I was watching East Idaho News's live because we got to hear from our favorites, Kay and Larry. But during it, his cameraman's like, there was a guy out here who was not happy about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, in the sea of everyone celebrating, there's this one guy. They're out there. And it makes me upset and nervous. Yeah, it does. It really, really does. But let's talk about the good stuff. So the verdict was live streamed. I frantically rushed home. I had just gotten to the grocery store when I got my hour notice. And I was like, oh, no, because we live far from everything, as Lindsay knows. Yeah. (laughs) So I sped back and I'm like, it's time. And I was so happy. I was like cheering and tears. It was the middle of my workday. So I couldn't even look at it until after. So it was a very delayed response from me. Because I, I looked at my phone and it was like so many missed messages from Amanda. And I was like, the, the verdict must have come out. Like, that is the only <laughs> thing that will explain this many text messages. And by text messages, I mean Discord messages. That's where we talk. But I think I just, I was just like, fuck yes. I was confident in the fact that it was a conviction because I knew that if she was acquitted, Amanda would have called me. <laughs> she would have been like, oh, ah! oh yeah. What the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> yes. But verdict. During the verdict... While they're reading off everything. And it was like, bam, bam, bam. This charge. Mm -hmm. Guilty. This charge. Guilty. It was great. She's just stoic. No emotion. No nothing. Mm -mm. You can't read her at all. It looked like she was at the DMV. It did. She was like kind of bored. And then after, when the jury was leaving, she crossed her arms and just looked pissed. And from what I heard, obviously, unfortunately, we were not there. She was upset and didn't even talk to her attorneys after and just walked out with the bailiff or whatever. And our favorite Larry, like at one point, he shook their hands and thanked them for their work and was just like a kind human all around. And she was pissed. So I loved that. I'm pretty sure that was after the defense rested and they they did all the jury instructions and stuff, because I want to think it was before we heard any verdict because it was just like, no, you're right. Good humaning. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was good humaning. Her defense attorneys weren't on her side. They were just tasked with defending her. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they are not for Tylee and JJ getting justice or Tammy. Yeah. I will say there was the live feed, but there also was a photographer Mm -hmm. there that day. And the pictures that came from it, there's like a picture of them hugging Rob Wood. Mm -hmm. 
And like, there is pictures of Larry too with Archibald and they're all smiling. And it just, it made my heart so happy to see they finally get to celebrate for once. Yeah. But anyways, just a great day all around. Friday was fantastic. So now that we have her verdict, let's talk about the next steps that Lori will be going through for sentencing. So before they can start sentencing, which will sometimes have like victim impact statements and things like that, where people will be able to talk to the court and kind of have their voice heard, which I think is good. But before that, there's a pre-sentencing investigation that has to be conducted. They're basically going to look at every factor of Lori totally. So they'll look at case facts surrounding the criminal activity that she was convicted for, her physical and mental health. They'll also look at her educational social, employment, resident, financial, and health histories. They'll then do also do evaluations for substance abuse, for domestic assault, also for mental health. And then at the end of all of this investigating, the investigator will write up a analysis for the court. And so that's what they'll look at to kind of see what the range of sentencing is. Yeah. And that investigation can take a few months. So we might not hear about her sentence until late summer. And we also won't hear victim impact statements until then either. I'm not ready for this. Oof, they're going to be rough. And as a reminder, the death penalty was taken off the table for this Idaho case. And if Laurie is ultimately sentenced to prison time, she'll be sent to the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center in Idaho. But once that sentencing is finished, before she does any type of prisoning, she'll be headed over to Arizona in Maricopa County. And that's when they'll begin her trial in her case. As a reminder, this is the case for the murder of Charles. And functionally, what this means is that she might be in the process of appealing her Idaho conviction while Arizona is starting their proceedings against her, which is complicated. And there also might be charges related to the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreaux that are added to that trial at the same time. And Arizona does have the death penalty, but they also have the insanity defense. So that's something to keep in mind. Sentencing someone to the death penalty gets a little bit more complicated when there's questions of sanity. Yeah, but it's wild that immediately right after the verdict, they're like, oh, yes, and we want her here as well. Yeah, well, I wonder if she's going to waive her right to a speedy trial again. Oh, Because if she does, it means that she will likely have her next trial before Chad's trial in June of 2024 starts in Ada County, which wouldn't that be wild if both were done? Oh, man. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. It could be so quick. Stress just thinking about it. Yeah, because I live in Arizona, so I want to go to at least a few of the days. Wild. Just wild. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how people responded to the verdict. That day, again, was great. There was a press conference with Larry and Kay. And one of the things from that day that I know I'll never forget is when they were leaving the courtroom and the crowd was chanting JJ's song, We Will Rock You. Mm. I died. It was so sad and perfect in every way. Yeah. And because a lot of the people who were there, there were people who were involved with the case, right? Like there were police officers. There were people who testified and then were released from their subpoenas so they could sit in. Mm -hmm. There were people who were just local. There's people from news sources. But it wasn't all people who had a connection to the victims. No. The idea that this community formed there to support them during this Mm -hmm. is lovely. It is. It is. So some of the statements that we've heard this week were from Annie Cushing, the Boudreaux family, the Cox and Shiflet families as well, Tammy's family or the Douglas family, and also the foundation that they created for Tammy Daybell, 
the Tammy Daybell Foundation. And I've seen so many sweet stories with what they've been doing and giving teachers grants for books. I love it. Yeah, I know for Tammy's birthday, I made a donation. Oh, sweet. And I was looking at their website and immediately began to cry at their logo, which is this duck. The ducks. Uh, and it's like standing on a book that says Dayball on it and it has glasses that kind of look like Tammy's glasses. Yes. And I was like, oh, it's so sad. I get really emotional even thinking about it. One of the teachers, I saw an interview that was going, I believe, on Tammy's birthday to the trial. And she got a notification that she received the grant that day from them. Yeah, because they did a whole bunch of grants for teachers on her birthday. Yes. That were just kind of surprise grants, which I, again, really, really sweet. Love them. Yeah. Well, each statement from all of the families expressed gratitude to everyone who's helped with the investigation and the proceedings, but also noted that while they are grateful, this doesn't bring JJ, Tylee, or Tammy back. So sad. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like what's hard is that this case is so publicized us talking about it too yeah that people expect statements from these families right and like people are like looking like well did they say anything what did they say yeah and i can't even imagine like writing a statement for this you know and putting it out we've got big feelings right now exactly yeah everyone's all over everything because i know people are already going nuts about not hearing from colby yet i'm like give him a minute give him some time here's the thing like regardless of what she did that's still his mom exactly Exactly. I would not be surprised if he was a person who also wanted her to face the consequences of what she had done. But it also means that his siblings are gone and his mom's in prison. And his dad or his stepdad. Yeah. So it's just sad. It's It's just really sad. yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs to give everyone a break. But I'm happy that we got the outcome that we did. And then just real quick, because I sat there, I watched it twice, honestly. But the press conference that Larry and Kay gave was beautiful. So during it, Larry says that he forgot one of the most important things. And he says, JJ, I love you. Papa wishes you were here in other circumstances. Tylee, Papa loves you. Tammy, I never met you. You are part of our life. I am sorry for what happened to you. My heart hurts. My heart hurts for these three. Oh, that was hard to get through. Mm. Oof. Whenever Larry talks, I just, I know I'm going to cry every time. Oh, yeah. 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 And then the part two, when he was walking down and they're singing the the song, he takes off like his jacket to show his full shirt. And he was wearing the world's greatest pawpaw shirt. Literally sobbing, not even looking at the photo now. Like I saw it. And once I like realized what it said, I was like a mess. Yeah. And now I am also a mess again. (laughs) Just thinking about the shirt. Yeah. And like just thinking about when he said those things. It wasn't quick. He had to keep pausing to like yes. compose himself. Yes. And it was like, oh, he's trying to hold it together. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, my heart, Larry. Yes, yes. Yeah, that part. I've never been so sad and happy at the same time. Yeah, that's very fair. So mind me over here, just a fucking wreck. <laughs> it was a hard day. It's a hard watch. Oof. But just to lighten it up for just a second, one of my favorite parts is when Kay and Larry are talking and then they kind of back away for a moment. I think Larry was stepping aside so Kay could talk. And I guess I, I didn't realize who it was, but it was Kay's brother. And he screams into the, all of the live microphones. Like there's this big block of microphones from like every news place ever. And he just mm-hmm. says they got the bitch. <laughs> I loved it so much. It was the comic relief everyone needed in that moment. 
I love that for them. That's the vibe, right? I can't imagine how mad they are. When Larry was talking, he talked about when he wanted, when he's going to give his impact statement. He mentioned, I'm going to ask her why. Yeah. Like, for what? He said, like, the same motive that the prosecution had said, which was money, power, and sex, right? He repeated that again. He's like, I want to look at her in the eye and say, why? Mm-hmm. Good overall. We're going to have more updates as this passes through the sentencing portion and then when it comes here. So I'm intrigued to see if they live stream those impact statements, by the way. I think they will. We'll see. We'll update you. They also might not because it will be hard to find an impartial jury for Chad. Fuck Fuck Chad. Well, we have a lot more with this, I guess, which I mean, I'm I'm happy where we're at today. We'll just leave it at that. Yes. Yes. Well, we want to know everyone's thoughts. Did you watch the live verdict? What did you think? Did you cheer? Uh, Were you surprised that there was a guy outside saying that they were innocent? Wild to me. Wild to me. Crazy. Crazy stuff. So if you have only listened to our Valo episodes, we cover lots of stuff, including other true crime cases. This is the biggest case we've covered so far. We have plans to do other ones in the future as well. If there's a case that you are looking for more coverage on, let us know. Yeah. See if it lines up with our schedule and the things that we decide to cover. But we also have lots of true crime case episodes in our long list of over 100 episodes. Yeah, and we try to mix it up, too. So we'll have some true crime, we'll have some paranormal, weird history, all kinds of fun stuff. And we take requests, so reach out to us if you have something. Yeah. Well, with that, have a great rest of your week. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. This is the worst Amanda impression ever. That's not what you sound like at all, but <laughs> here we are. You know, at least I didn't have like a weird accent or anything. Today. You have no accent. I have like a weird, muddy accent. Oh, no, no. Everyone knows I'm from California. I didn't realize it, but I guess there is a California accent. And it's when you say words like, I can't say it. C-A-N. Ken? You say Ken too. Yeah. Okay, you you have it. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's wrong, but that people are like you're from California, aren't you? Because you say this is this. And the only one I can remember can instead of can right now is can. Yeah. I say can. Like can you go do this? Can is a hard A. It's dumb. Anyways. So, well, it's just it's just a different like dialect, but I feel like can is like proper pronunciation on how like we're taught in America how to say that word. A lot of people say can. Can I It feels um can i don't know that feels weird in my mouth there's more but i mean there is like canton which is an area yeah uh, near here and ohio i think but oh there's more that's the one that i can think of at the top of my head but they're out there my chair is so fucking loud